Welcome to Live at the National Constitution Center, the podcast sharing live constitutional conversations hosted by the National Constitution Center. I'm Jackie McDermott, the show's producer. Earlier this month, we hosted a special student town hall with Supreme Court Justice Neil M. Gorsuch. Justice Gorsuch spoke about his career, the role of the judicial branch, and what it's like to sit on the Supreme Court. He spoke with NCC President Jeffrey Rosen. Here's Jeff. Thank you so much, Curry. <laughs> what a wonderful introduction. And welcome, Justice Gorsuch. We are so honored to have you with us on Constitution Day. We're honored that you serve as chair of the National Constitution Center and that you've joined this series of online classes that we're, Curry and I are offering three times a week at noon and 2 p.m. to educate students across the country from about the Constitution. So let me just begin by saying welcome, Justice, and thank you so much for joining us. Jeff Curry, it's so great to see both of you. And I cannot believe what I'm seeing in terms of all of the names and schools from across the country coming in. It's, it's really inspiring and wonderful to see behind your shoulder and Curry's shoulder, the National Constitution Center, the words, we the people, and of course, Independence Hall. It's inspiring. It, it really is inspiring. And as you said, just seeing the variety of places folks are coming from to celebrate the Constitution is wonderful. Curry is uh, standing in front of Independence Hall with her backdrop. I'm standing in front of the Constitution Center, which faces Independence Hall. So I'll begin with, with this question. On September 17th, the framers in Independence Hall signed the Constitution. What were they signing and why do we celebrate Constitution Day on September 17th? Well, we, we celebrate the signing of the Constitution, as you just said, Jeffrey, and the signing of a document that governs us still today and has managed to be uh, a bulwark of human liberty like nothing else in human history. Daniel Webster said it took 6,000 years for our constitution to happen. And miracles like that don't happen in clusters. And we should take a moment to recognize that, yes, it's not perfect. We're all striving to a more perfect union always. But what we have been given by those who came before us is an enormous gift, the likes of which is the envy of the world today and has given us more freedom as individuals than any other arrangement for government in the history of humankind. Beautifully said. Tell our friends what ideals the framers were trying to enshrine when they came to Philadelphia in 1787. What were the founders trying to achieve in the Constitution. Jeffrey, before we get to that, I think one other thing we celebrate today are people and institutions that continue to make the Constitution real in our lives. And I am so pleased that today the U.S. Constitution Center, you will be today celebrating Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, my colleague, and providing her the Liberty Medal the highest award that the Constitution Center offers is a Life Achievement Award. And I, no one deserves it more richly than Ruth. And I'm just thrilled, and I wanna say it today, I'm thrilled that you guys are doing that. It's a highly meaningful thing. And she has served this country as a judge for 40 years, since 1980. And um, think about the sacrifices she's made on our behalf. We owe her a very great deal, and I'm glad we're celebrating her today. So that's part of what we do on Constitution Day, too. Um, so your question, I'm sorry, 
Yeah, let, let me just thank you for those that beautiful tribute to Justice Ginsburg. You put so well her remarkable achievements, which have led the Constitution Center to give her the Liberty Medal. And I've just seen the tribute video that we produced. We've assembled her favorite opera singers to offer tributes to her in words and music, and it is so moving. We're going to broadcast it at 6.30. I hope all of our friends who are watching online will tune in. It's, it's free and online, and it's a really meaningful and moving tribute. So, so thank you for, for chairing the Constitution Center and, and paying tribute to Justice Ginsburg. On to the question of the, the ideals and, and what the framers were, were trying to achieve when they, when they came to, to Philadelphia. Well, I think they were trying to balance a few things. One, they needed a national government that was functional, that worked. Uh, the Articles of Confederation that came before it just didn't work for, for a nation state. Uh, there were too many divisions among the individual states. So they were trying to make a workable federal government. At the same time, they recognized the importance of government being close to the people and that states shouldn't be completely dissolved and remain an important mediating function between the individuals on the one hand and the federal government on the other. And so they wanted to preserve a realm for the states. And finally, and I think most importantly, they wanted to do it in a way that preserved and recognized the primacy of the individual and our unalienable rights as individuals, that people as persons, as individuals come first before the state, that we have rights that pre-exist the state and that the state's job is to protect and defend. And that's an oath I take and every judge takes is to protect and defend the constitution and the rights that are enshrined in it. And the whole purpose was to allow the flourishing of individuals according to their own lights, allow them to figure out how best to live their own lives without being dictated from above. So I think those were a few of the things that, that, that the framers had in mind when they gathered right behind you in Philadelphia. Wonderfully put and uh, calling out the centrality of individual liberty, unalienable rights, and the structural uh, limitations on government power is so important. We had a bunch of questions uh, submitted in advance, um, and then we'll get to the questions that are just flying through in the chat box. Many of them uh, want to know about what it's like to be a Supreme Court justice. So Sam, uh, an eighth grader at St. James Academy, says, uh, what's your proudest achievement as a judge? What's your favorite part about being a Supreme Court judge? And what's the most stressful part about being a Supreme Court justice? Wow. <laughs> Sam, wow. Uh, I'd say, you know, the stressful parts are um, knowing that you're the last court, right? Now, the Court of Appeals where I served before, you always had in the back of your mind the idea that, well, if I get it wrong, there are nine wonderful people who can backstop me, who can fly spec my work and check it. And now there's nobody left. Uh, and so there's a certain amount of stress and pressure associated with trying to get it absolutely right. Do the absolute best job you can do knowing that you're the last stop on the road. Um, in terms of what's enjoyable, uh, I'd say one of my favorite things is working with young people. Um, every year I get a new set of, of law clerks, four young people almost straight out of law school. So Sam, they're now a whole lot older than you are. Um, they're usually in their early 20s and they've done work very, very hard. And one of the rewards of hard work is you get to spend a year in the Supreme Court working behind the scenes on cases with, with a judge, with a justice of the court. 
And it's just a joy to see their dedication and interest in our constitution and in making it real and carrying it forward because the baton is gonna to pass to their hands soon enough. Jeff and I were law clerks together and it doesn't seem that long ago. Um, and so watching those young people um, in the same role we served in, Jeff, is one of the most inspiring things for me. How beautifully put, it really doesn't seem that long ago at all. And it's incredible for me to remember, it was long ago in, in 1991 when we were law clerks that I, I first met Judge Ginsburg. She was a judge on that court where we were both law clerks. And uh, here we are 30 years later. It's remarkable how- can I, tell, can I tell a story about that, Jeffrey? Yeah, please. So um, when I was a law clerk to Justice White in 1993, he retired and his replacement was Ruth Ginsburg. She joined the court when I was a law clerk here. And one of my very first tasks as Justice White's law clerk was to put together his law clerk manual, which he'd assembled over 30 years on the Supreme Court. But it was a mess. Justice White wasn't uh, very particular about the order in which it was kept and how it was kept. And so we had to kind of reassemble it. And he said, go give it to Justice Ginsburg because I don't need it anymore. And so I, I took it over to her chambers, along with a kind note from Justice White. Fast forward 25 years, a day I never thought I'd see. I become a justice on the Supreme Court. And what do I see in my inbox within the first week or so of my arrival is that same book, um, a law clerk instruction manual from Ruth Gale, saying you may recognize this, but I've improved it over time. And indeed she had, she improved upon and Justice White started all those years ago. What, what a remarkable story. And it's such a sign of her incredible thoughtfulness, her incredible attention to detail. And I'll, I'll just tell my uh, story of meeting her back that same year, uh, which I talk about in the video tonight. We were in an elevator and I was seeing her for the first time and she's very formidable. She didn't speak and I, I was just trying to break the ice and I blurted out, what operas have you seen recently? <laughs> she's, a great, she's a great opera lover and that just be she opened up and that began a great conversation about opera that's continued to this day and culminates in our video tonight with the opera singers so it's such a privilege to to meet her and now to work with you in this great capacity for constitutional education many years later um i am just seeing uh in the chat box a great question justice gorsuch thank you so much for doing this do you have a favorite piece of art literature or writing about the constitution well, about the Constitution. Well, I have to say, I just saw Hamilton for the first time um, on the Disney Channel. My kids made me watch it. And I think it's fantastic. My only complaint is that James Madison doesn't come across very well. And I'm a big James Madison fan. Uh, you know, he wrote the Constitution. What we're celebrating today was mostly his work. Uh, and, you know, here is a, a man who was uh, maybe five foot two, uh, maybe weighed 100 pounds, wasn't able to be a great warrior, always thought to be sickly and died early. And he's the person who wrote our Constitution and who outlived all the rest of the founders, as it turned out, of course. Uh, and was, I think, the last president of the United States to actually lead troops into battle during the War of 1812. Thank you for standing up for, for James Madison in the, in, the, in the face of that otherwise excellent Hamilton musical. 
Do you want to tell our friends uh, which portraits you have hanging in your chambers? Because I know those are important to you. Sure. Um, and if you haven't seen Hamilton and you can get, get access to it, I, I just highly recommend it. It's a wonderful history and it's, it's a lot of fun too. Uh, so I have two portraits hanging in my office um, that I keep to remind me um, of what I'm here to do and what I'm not here to do. Um, the first is James Madison. Um, and he reminds me that uh, it's all about our constitution. It isn't about me. It isn't about him because I don't think most people today recognize him, know who he is. Um, and he'd be fine with that. It wasn't in his mind about him. It was about the enduring document that we're celebrating. And uh, so he's reminded me of the duty I owe to our original constitution. And then the second portrait I have hanging just right here next to me now is uh, Justice John Marshall Harlan, the first John Marshall Harlan. Um, he was in many ways an imperfect and flawed human being as we all are. Uh, he was a former slave holder from the state of Kentucky. Um, but when the case Plessy versus Ferguson came to the United States Supreme Court, and I know many of your students on here today are studying that probably now or will be soon. Um, the question was whether segregation, whether separate could be equal and consistent with the 14th Amendment's promise of the equal protection of the laws. It was one of the saddest days in Supreme Court history. The court ruled eight to one in favor of separate but equal as consistent with the 14th Amendment. Only John Marshall Harlan dissented. And I can't believe it made him very popular in his home state of Kentucky at that time. But he knew, as you know, as I know, that it isn't about what we would like the law to be. It's about what the law is. And the words equal protection of the laws are not consistent with segregation. And he stood up and enforced the original meaning of the 14th Amendment, um, despite a lot of pressure otherwise. And so he serves for me as a reminder that we have a second constitution that's helped make this a more perfect union. The Reconstruction Amendments after the Civil War, the 13th, the 14th, the 15th Amendments, and I'm going to throw in there the 19th Amendment. And he reminds me that I owe the same fidelity to those documents as I do to the original document, the Madison book. Thank you so much for calling our friends' attention to the central, central importance of the Reconstruction Amendments and the 19th Amendments. As you know, we have at the Constitution Center two really inspiring exhibits on the Reconstruction Amendments, which you saw, and on the 19th Amendment, which just opened two weeks ago in celebration of the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment. We have uh, lots of questions along these lines, so I'm gonna uh, ask them, uh, what's the hardest case you've decided on the Supreme Court, and what have you learned as a justice on the Supreme Court? Well, I'd say the hardest case is the one I'm working on at any given moment, Jeff, uh, honestly. Uh, they're all hard. They don't come, the easy ones don't come here, right? I mean, the whole point of the system is that the easy cases get decided at the lower levels of our system. Um, so every case I get here is hard. Um, and and uh, everyone is incredibly important to the people who are affected by it. And so I, I, I recognize that each of them would say, mine is the hardest case and deserves the most attention. And you try and you try and live with that thought in mind at all, all times. In terms of things I've learned, and, um, 
I learned just how wonderful our legal system is. It's not perfect. Um, we have a lot of problems with access to justice today and the ability of people to get lawyers and take their cases to court, for example. But it, it really is the envy of the world. Um, and I got a few statistics I'd like to share, if I might, just, just to remind people about, you know, when we're cynical and we think that things aren't working maybe exactly how they should, and, and I'm not here to tell you you're wrong, but maybe you ought to step back and look at the forest sometimes. In this country, every year, there are 50 million lawsuits filed, five zero. And I'm not counting all the traffic tickets and parking tickets of your teachers, okay? This is just real serious lawsuits. Now that's an incredible number. I mean, we're a pretty litigious bunch, us Americans. But 95% of those cases are resolved in the trial court with a jury and a judge and never appealed. Now, I represented a lot of losing parties, any good lawyer has over time. And they would tell you, I think mostly, that while they didn't like the outcome, they would accept it as reasonably fair that the judge or the jury tried hard. And they, got, and they were heard. And that's what they wanted to be, was heard. So 95% of those cases are never appealed. Only 5% of cases in the federal system, and even fewer in the state system, ever get appealed to the courts of appeals, like the one I used to sit on in Denver. We heard cases from six states, two time zones. And I sat with judges appointed by President Obama, all the way back to President Johnson, Lyndon Baines Johnson. Huge range of views, very diverse on any scale you want to pick. We sat in panels of three. And with those 5% of the hard cases that were appealed every year, we managed to become, reach a unanimous judgment about 95% of the time in those hard cases. It's pretty incredible when you think about it. So what's left? The United States Supreme Court every year Here's only 70 cases, about 70 cases, out of those 50 million. There are only 70 that are worth hearing where the lower courts have disagreed. The courts of appeals have actually reached contrary judgments to one another. You don't want that, right? You don't want people in California facing one rule and people in New York or Oklahoma facing another rule under the same statute or provision of law. That's not fair. That's when the Supreme Court steps in, resolve those disagreements between lower courts. And there are only about 70 of them a year. It's not a lot. Well, now I have to sit with nine judges. There are nine of us, not three anymore. And we've been appointed uh, over the course of 25 years by five, I think five different presidents. And we're coming from all across the country, not just a region of it, like the 10th Circuit. Well, I'm not sure many people realize, but we managed to reach a unanimous judgment in those cases where the lower courts have disagreed about 40% of the time. That's, I think, pretty incredible. Now, people say, well, what about the 5-4 decisions? And there are some of them, but that's only about a third of our docket. That's it. And the 5-4 decisions, I think last term of the term before, there were 10 different combinations of justices making up those five, four decisions. So it isn't all monolithic the way some people would like to think. And then when I tell people these numbers, Jeff, they go, wow, that's, 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 that's news. And I have to say, I'm afraid it really isn't because those numbers have been the same since about 1945, the 40% figure and the 25 or 33% figure on the five fours. Nothing has changed except for this. In 1945, 
President Franklin Delano Roosevelt had appointed eight of the nine justices of the United States Supreme Court. And if we can do as well, having been appointed by, I think, five different presidents, whatever it is, over 25 years, if we can do as well as they did, appointed all by the same president, what does that tell you about the rule of law in this country? I feel really, I feel like sometimes we lose the forest for the trees, but the trees are magnificent. The forest is even better. What an important message for Constitution Day to remind our friends how often justices of different perspectives are united. And friends, you can inspire yourself by reading Supreme Court opinions. Go to the Supreme Court website, supremecourt.gov. You'll see those unanimous decisions. And also, I want you to take Justice Gorsuch's example, read the majority opinions, the concurrences, and the dissents. I know you're, you're not lawyers, you're middle school, high school students, but I have faith but if you read those decisions, you'll see that these are not being decided uh, by politics. They're being decided on the basis of law by judges of very different perspectives, converging and agreeing and disagreeing respectfully. It's a crucial message on Constitution Day. Uh, we have from Seth a very, another great question for Constitution Day. What can we do as students to work to preserve the Constitution? Well, I think first and foremost, as students, your job is to learn about it. Um, I worry when I read today that 60% of people would fail our citizenship test in this country, are not able to understand our constitution well enough even to pass our basic citizenship test. Only about a third of the country can name the three branches of government. 10% of the country believes that Judas Scheinlin, apparently they think this, Judas Scheinlin serves on the United States Supreme Court. And as some of the students out there know, that's Judge Judy. And I like Judge Judy, but she is not one of my colleagues. So as a student right now, I'd say, learn everything you can, because this is your constitution. Those words right above Jeff Rosen there, we the people. Ultimately, this is going to be in your hands to preserve, protect, and defend. It's going to happen sooner than you think, as Jeff and I can attest. So be prepared, is what I would say right now. Um, and if you doubt me how quickly it's going to be in your hands, can I tell the story of Greg Watson? Oh, absolutely. That's such a great story. So Greg Watson, who's Greg Watson? Well, he was a student at the University of Texas, a college student, not much older than you are now. And he was asked to write a paper about the Constitution. Maybe even for Constitution Day, I don't know. And he thought, I want to write about constitutional amendments never got adopted. And he found one that James Madison had written way back when the Bill of Rights was being proposed. And Madison thought it might make a good addition to the Bill of Rights, that it had to do with the pay of congressmen and when they could be increased. And he said, I think this is a good amendment. The amendment would have provided that before a pay rise can happen, there has to be an intervening election so the American people can kind of decide for themselves what they think of those folks who are voting on a pay rise. And he, and he looked and he saw that a number of states ratified this provision already. And it wasn't that far off from complete ratification. So he wrote a paper saying, gee, I think this thing could still be ratified today. And that it'd be kind of fun if it were. And his teacher gave him, I don't know whether it was a D or an F. I think it was an F, just failed him outright. Well, Greg Watson, as a college student, didn't like that very much. So he decided to go on a little... He decided he was, he was angry about it and he was going to do something about it. And he started writing state legislatures across the country saying, please, would you take a look at 
this and think about ratifying it. And eventually, it became the 27th Amendment to the United States Constitution in 1992, not that long ago. And old Greg Watson wasn't done yet, though. He went back to his teacher and asked for the, to revisit the grade, and I think he wound up with an A in the end. So this is going to happen, and you are in charge soon. Be prepared. You can't get a better story than that story of Greg Watson, which shows how, as Justice Gorsuch says, an individual can make a difference when it comes to constitutional change. And his message about the importance of learning about the Constitution as the best way that you can preserve it is crucial. And now, as the justice knows, I'm going to screen share and make, put in a plug for the Constitution Center's amazing interactive Constitution. This is this free online resource at constitutioncenter.org. You can click on any amendment. We'll start with the preamble and see the leading scholars in the country of, diff of different perspectives with statements about what they agree and disagree about. You'll see the early drafts of the Constitution. You'll see podcasts and uh, videos and blogs about the provision, and then you'll have these live classes. So it's such a privilege to be able to be part of this great teaching document. And as the justice says, just pick a different provision every week, dig in, see where your passions lead, and fill yourself with light and learning. Uh, we have uh, lots of uh, questions from uh, Richard Clark's incredible students in Reno, Nevada um, ask, do you, Justice Gorsuch, think government should focus on liberty or order? Well, um, th that's exactly one of the dichotomies that uh, I think the founders were trying to reconcile, right? They wanted something we call order liberty. It sounds like a contradiction, but it isn't, right? Because for our liberties to work, for our freedoms to work, there has to be a baseline of order and civility. And I think if our fr framers could speak to us today, one thing they'd tell us is, is to remember that uh, your rights depend upon your recognition of other people's rights as well. You need to have the order so that you can have the liberty. Um, and that means um, recognizing that, that that other person is your equal and that we have to be tolerant, more than tolerant, kind maybe even loving toward those we disagree with. Who knows, we might learn something if we sit down and talk and listen to one another. Tolerant, loving, and kind to those we disagree with, a model of respectful civil dialogue. It relates to a question that several of our friends have uh, raised, which is that how do you and the other justices argue? I don't think of it as arguing. Um, you know, do we disagree sometimes? Yes. You, you, bring, you bring nine people of very different backgrounds um, uh, together and give them the hardest cases in the country, you're going to have some disagreements. That's to be expected. Um, but they're respectful disagreements and sometimes even fun, Jeffrey, as you know. Um, uh, there are more than a few practical jokesters among my colleagues. And um, every day we we shake hands while we used to. I think now we're going to be bumping elbows for a while. But every time we gather, there's a tradition that goes back 150 years of every time we gather to actually go around and shake everyone's hand, no matter how hot the temperature might be at the moment. And that's an ice-breaking thing. And then we eat lunch together most every day when we're in session. We eat lunch together a lot. Um, and that's a time when we share stories about one another's families, we talk a lot about sports. 
opera. I've learned a lot about opera. <laughs> and and um, and and and, uh, and tell jokes. Uh, Justice Breyer's grandchildren are living with him, and he's an endless source of knock-knock jokes as a result. Um, so, do we disagree? Yes, but we do it very, very respectfully, kindly, tolerantly, and listen. We, we do a lot of listening to one another because we know that we're likely to improve our own thinking by listening to those with whom we disagree. That's so uh, moving to hear the importance of those face-to-face interactions and your respectful deliberations. How, how, how has that changed, given the fact that, of necessity, everyone has to be working from home? How has that changed well, the deliberations? Yeah. Honestly, I, I really wish uh, your students could, could see us when we deliberate. I mean, I, I, I don't, because I think it's very important that we're able to speak candidly to one another and quietly and privately. I think that and, and allows people to, a, a chance and a space to think about their views and, and refine them and change their mind. But if there were a fly on the wall, what you'd see is that we go around in order of seniority. Everyone gets to say their piece. Everyone says it peacefully. And then after that, there's a very calm, reasoned discussion until everybody feels like they've had their chance to say what they want to say and to think through the problem in a way that's useful to them. Then we move on to the next case. And we, at some point in there, we'll break for coffee and maybe a cookie. Uh, it's been hard without the uh, ability to see my colleagues on a daily basis like that. Um, as I know, it's really hard on the students across the country. And it just breaks my heart that this pandemic uh, which holds the least threat to them, as in so many ways, cause them the most suffering as a, as a group. Um, so I don't have anything to complain about, but uh, do I miss the opportunity to have that in-person dialogue? Yes. We've been doing it over conference calls, um, which has its challenges with nine people on a conference call. Uh, we, you know, we have to... Uh, you can't see who's finished talking as well as you might otherwise. So there's a little more uh, confusion as you'd expect, um, but it's worked really well. And I, I, I believe it worked well through the spring and I, and I'm hopeful that it will continue to work well this, this fall. Thank you for that. Uh, we have a series of related questions. Uh, what is your favorite, what was your favorite class in school? Asked Tamara from a third grade class. And then we have a second grade student who asks, what was your favorite class in elementary school? Oh, wow. Favorite class in school. That's been a while. Well, I love science class sometimes in elementary school because we got to blow things up. And I liked doing that as a kid. Um, occasionally in the science lab, right? Uh, but I, I love history. I love literature. I love reading books. Um, I was a pretty bookish kid, I guess, let's say. Um, so those are those are some some of my favorite things. Still, I, I still love to read good books um, at, at the end of every day. That's part of what calms me down and lets me go to sleep, um, and it's still part of my life. And I can't leave without saying also PE. Right? I mean, let's be honest. Right? We all loved a little break in the day to go play dodgeball. I don't know if they still play dodgeball, but we love playing dodgeball. And um, and where I grew up, we did a lot of skiing. So. Uh, that was a huge part of my life too, still is. 
staying physically active, physically fit has always helped me um, think better. Um, after an hour of exercise, my brain works better than it does before. And, um, and it's one of those things that if you don't keep up with in life, uh, it gets real hard to get back in shape. Um, a lot easier to try and stay closer to being in shape. So I just think about that too as, as you're growing up. In the spirit of uh, recommendations, uh, we have, did you uh, read any good books this summer that you'd like to recommend? It's the best book I read this summer. I read Pioneers by David McCullough, um, which is a story about uh, um, early pioneers in right, right around 1800 moving into Ohio. And when I think of pioneers, Jeff, I always think about my part of the world out west. And uh, it was the Wild West in Ohio in 1800. And there were remarkable men and women who went out there and settled it and made sure that it was going to be a free um, state, um, the Northwest Ordinance, which they fought for and got passed in Congress at the same time that the Constitution was being debated. Messiah uh, Cutler, I believe, is the gentleman's name who ought to be remembered and who isn't, uh, went down to lobby both Congress in New York as it was then sitting at the same time the Constitutional Convention is taking place in Philadelphia. And he visited both places because he knew the men and, and folks in both places were going to be essential to the passage of the Northwest Ordinance. And he managed to persuade them that this, this area, this first new area of the country, should always be free. Wow. Uh, Pioneers by David McCullough. Great. Great story. Wonderful. Uh, I, that leads me to ask, I'm sure lots of folks are curious, I, I may have an idea, but what is the other flag behind you next to the American flag? Oh, now I bet you have a bunch of kids who can tell you the answer to that. Let's see, can we, anyone want to chat it? I'll uh, see if we got it. I'm looking in the chat. Uh, Colorado, uh, everyone's got yeah. it right, absolutely. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's what I thought. Good, uh, very glad. Yeah. Uh, shout outs from Colorado and friends, um, Colorado students, just chat out your schools and, and we'll uh, celebrate them right now because we're so glad that you're here. Um, here's a question that lots and lots of our friends are asking. Aries Mills from Cherry Creek, Yale, Regis University, Las Robles. Oh, you got a lot of friends from Colorado out there. Um, many right. of our friends are asking a very basic question. What made you want to become a judge? Well, um I lived through uh, 9-11 as a, as a lawyer in private practice. And I was at that stage too old to do anything useful in the military, but felt like I should put my skills to work in public service when the moment came. And uh, eventually it did come. Um, and I was asked to join the Justice Department. Uh, and from there, it was an accident, Jeffrey. Uh, but I. I just felt that there was a point in my life where this country had been very good to me. I worked hard, I had my struggles, but it had been very good to me. And it was time to get back. And I know that's exactly how you feel too, and why you do what you do, and why I'm so grateful you're doing what you're doing. Couldn't be anything more important. Um, but that's my story. Inspiring, and it is, as you say, very meaningful to be part of the enterprise of teaching and learning, and in your case, helping uh, interpret the meaning of the U.S. Constitution. Um, we're getting a, a version of this question from many of our friends. I'm sure it's hard to articulate, but 
uh, I'll ask it because everyone wants to know, what does it feel like to be a Supreme Court justice? Oh, it's totally surreal, Jeffrey. I mean, <laughs> you know, right? I mean, it's not what I expected. It's, it's not a life I thought I'd lead. Um, but on the other hand, it's, it's just an ordinary life. Um, I, I do my exercise in the morning. I ride my bike to work. Uh, I go for a run, whatever I do in the morning. Um, I come in, I see my law clerks, four young people, my excellent, unflappable assistants. And uh, I sit and I read briefs and listen to the lawyers. And I think hard and I talk to my colleagues and then I go home and I do it all again the next day. And it's just, it's a job. And it's, it's a privilege and an honor to be able to do this job. But it is a job and it isn't about me. And um, I, I get to go home to my, my wonderful wife and my kids and dogs and cat and whole barn full of animals. And life is just like it always has been in a lot of ways too, which is nice. Thank you for giving us that window into what it's like. Uh, uh, one of our friends asks, who is your role model? Boy, I, I have a lot, and you're listening to one of them right now. Um, but if I, if, if I had to pick one, um, I, I'd pick Byron White, um, the one that we haven't already mentioned, and his bust is just sitting right, right next to me here, too. Um, he was the first and only other justice from the state of Colorado. And like my grandparents, he was the same generation, he, many of my grandparents, he, he grew up in extreme poverty. Um, and he managed to go to the University of Colorado. Mine, mine went to other places, University of Denver. My parents went to the University of Colorado too. And he graduated first in his class. And he also led the NCAA in rushing. Uh, Rhodes Scholar, a World War II hero, one of John Kennedy's best friends. And here was a man who couldn't have been more humble um, and thoughtful about his role as a justice. Right? I tell this story a lot because it just it speaks to me every day in a way that I didn't ever expect. Um, when I was his law clerk, we were walking down the halls of the Supreme Court. And Jeff, you've heard this, but he said to me, so, so Neil, how many of these old dogs do you actually recognize? And I thought about it. And the honest answer was I could only probably name half. And I, I thought I knew a lot at that stage, right? I'm a 20-something-year-old law student graduate. Uh, but it was only about half. And so I was honest with, with the boss and said, said that number. I was kind of embarrassed by it. And then he said something that really shocked me. He said, me too. And, and then he said, and that's exactly how it should be. And when I'm dead, they'll forget me too. And I'm fine with that. And I thought that was terribly sad when he said it to me. But then I've come to realize over the years, it isn't about us. It's not about any individual, or it shouldn't be. It's about we the people. It's about the freedoms, the liberties, the life we're all privileged to lead. In a, in a time, what better time has there been alive? What better place? And we have to ask ourselves why that is. It's not perfect, but why is it that we're so blessed? And it has so much to do with those three words and those that follow, we the people. 
and the structural freedoms and protections that we're given and allowed to live every day. Choose our own way, speak our own mind, have our own faith or none at all, the privacy of our homes, our papers and our effects, a guarantee of due process and equal protection under law. Those are incredible guarantees. And they're not true everywhere in the world today, and they certainly weren't true through history. So Byron White was reminding me, he's my role model because he reminds me, humility, kindness, and above all, we the people. It's a deeply significant story. And um, this relates to uh, several of our students asked, what advice would you give to someone who aspires to become a Supreme Court justice, how do you maintain that humility in reminding yourself that in the end, as Justice White said, uh, all justices are, are just uh, parts of a, of a long uh, unfolding story that's much larger than themselves. And what a beautiful story it is to be able to be a part of, right? Um, I, I just say to those young folks, uh, be persistent, work hard, be prepared, Learn everything you can learn. Be kind to one another. You know all these virtues. Your grandmother taught them to you. Your mom taught them to you. Your teacher teaches them by their, by their example. There are things that don't need to be said, but you know to be true. You live that life. You'll be a life that's useful to others, whether it's in law or any other field of endeavor. This is just one way to make a contribution. There are so many wonderful ways to live a life in service of this greater good. Um, whether it's a park ranger or a firefighter or a nurse or a lawyer, um, find a way to be useful to others. That's the greatest reward you'll find for yourself. It's such a profound bit of advice you're giving our friends and several are asked, I'll just ask myself because how do you maintain those virtues uh, of kindness, humility, not losing your temper? It's, it's, it's hard when you're our age. It, it's hard when you're young, and it's hard to keep doing when you're old, and especially in such an important job as you have, it's, it's difficult. So how, on a daily basis, do you actually achieve those important virtues? Well, it's just like everybody's teachers say right now, right? Practice, right? Um, and... Uh, None of it. I'm certainly not perfect. My kids will tell you that. My law clerks will tell you that. Um, but um, it's just one of those habits, right? Actions create habits. Habits create character. And character creates your destiny. It's true. Um, and I'm just so grateful for all the teachers of America who are watching right now and helping their children through this very difficult time create those actions, to create those habits lead to that character. And you never know, you never know what's gonna to happen to those students and the destinies that you're shaping right now. I know a lot of my teachers would be chuckling. Well, your thanks to the Teachers of America is such an appropriate note on which to end. Uh, we're just about to wrap up, but this is the time for me to ask you if you have any final thoughts or advice for our wonderful students from all over the country. And I want you to start chatting out where you're fr from again, so you can inspire Justice Gorsuch and me as, as he gives you some final thoughts. But Justice, what are your final words to the students who are with us on Constitution Day? Jeff, keep up the great work, all right? 
I'm really grateful to places like the National Constitution Center, the iCivics, so many other organizations who are trying to continue to make real this Constitution and, and, and to empower the American youth to recognize that this is their Constitution. It's not mine. It's not yours. It's theirs. And they're going to own it. And it's going to be in their hands to make sure that it's carried on. And it's a great gift that they've been given and that we've received. And so thank you for doing what you're doing is what I want to end with. And thank you to the teachers who are continuing to help make this real in the lives of their children all across the country. It's been an honor to be with you today. Thank you, Justice. The honor is ours. Thank you to our phenomenal students from across the country. I can't even count the number of states. And hope to see all of you tonight at 6.30, constitutioncenter.org for the Liberty Medal to Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Happy Constitution Day. You too. Thank you. Bye, everyone. This episode was engineered by the NCC's AV team and produced by me, Jackie McDermott, along with Scott Bomboy, Curry Sautner, Tanea Tauber, and Lana Ulrich. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Live at the National Constitution Center on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And join us back here next week. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jackie McDermott.